0: Hey there, thanks for checking out Discover Church's bonus episode that we are. This is actually week number three of a study we're doing on the book of Judges. Uh, Today we talk about Deborah and we talk about the impact she had in the book of Judges and that she's the only female judge. So hope you enjoy. And go from there. But uh, all right, well, cool. Well, it's uh, so it's week three. And if you got your Bibles with you, uh, you want to go ahead and open them up to the book of Judges. We're actually going to be in Judges chapter 4, for the most part, 4 and 5. Hopefully, if you had the opportunity to read, uh, you kind of are familiar with this story. If you didn't, don't stress. We're not going to read everything, but we're going to give you enough uh, to kind of know the the painted picture here on what that looks like. So uh, in the fourth judge in the book of Judges... Uh, is, she's the only lady judge. All right. Shout out to all the ladies in the, in the room. Okay. She's the only lady judge. Uh, we get Deborah, and Deborah is, uh, got one of the cool stories, uh, in scripture, uh, not just because of her in it, but because some other people that are in it, we'll get to that, uh, as, as we go. Uh, but here's what we'll do. We'll read, uh, judges chapter four. We're just going to read the first couple, of um, the first couple verses here. It says that after Ehud died, Ehud, of course, was the last one. He's one of the guys. He got one verse uh, to describe his feat. It says, After Ehud died, uh, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we see this basically is a rep- uh, repetitious theme. And it says, So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, uh, who reigned in ha- uh, Hazor. Uh, he commanded his army uh, the guy that committed his arm was, was named was Sisera. Uh, he lived in, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that because those <laughs> well, names right there, That that's, that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a mouthful. So it's right there at the end of verse two. Uh, and this says because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. And then what happens is, because if you remember, we've had a couple uh, weeks here, we had the, the, our, our cycle. Because of the cycle, guess what? They get oppressed. What do they do? They cry out for deliverance, and then God hears their cry. So, I uh, wanted to give you just a little bit, because we've talked about iron chariots uh, briefly in the past. And uh, if you wanted to kind of a, an idea of what the iron chariot, give or take, would it looked like, these iron chariots was the most likely had the kind that was led by two horses. Uh, and believe it or not, I know it doesn't look very big, but you would typically find two people on the back of this iron chariot, one obviously to steer and the other one to shoot. And uh, also, uh, if you've seen, I don't know, like uh, Gladiator or any other movie uh, that really kind of promotes this, right? One of the things that you would also uh, see that a lot of times that they would do to these is they would add things off the spindles because you got to remember primarily if you had a, if you had an iron chariot, who? What kind of soldiers are they fighting against? Anybody want to take a guess? Roman. Huh? Roman. Well, not just Roman, but what? What? What type? If there's like there's there's chariots, there's cavalry, there's what else? Huh? Foot soldiers. Foot soldiers. Infantrymen. Yeah. People, guys with their they're got their own two feet and some sandals strapped to them, and they probably got a spear in one hand, and if they're lucky, they got some sort of like like a shield, a light shield, in the other hand. You got to remember at the time too. The reason this was such a big deal uh, is because not everybody had the capabilities to do make make things out of metal like this. Uh, it, it was the time when it wasn't overly popular, so uh, don't think like a lot of times you, you watch like some of these old movies and everybody's, everybody's got these big heavy shields, you know what I mean? And they're going into battle. Like that's a lot of times not the case, the, it just depending on uh, who you were, your availability and what you might have to fight with. It might be uh, wood with uh, like leather or other something else to kind of thicken it up, make it a little bit heavier. So realistically, the reason it's such a big deal, he had 900 of these is they're basically trying to paint a picture to say that Cicero with 900 chariots could do a ton of damage to an army, even if the army vast, vastly outnumbered them, but that he could do such serious damage because they can literally take these horses By the way, if you didn't know, horses generally are bigger than people. So you got the horses are bigger than them. You got a guy on the back. You got things coming out to cut your legs off and you got another guy with an arrow on the back picking you off one one at a time. So you could see how one of these things could do serious, serious damage in the case of battle. And so that's basically what they're really trying uh, to kind of like paint the picture of here. Now uh, I will tell you, uh, just to go into a little bit of history here. So it's talking here in the beginning, in verse 2, uh, that Israel is delivered into the hands of Jabin. Okay, Now, uh, I did a little bit of research on this. You're going to find that uh, Jabin, there's not really, as far as Jabin in, in the book of Judges, not a lot that's really known about Jabin. But we do find that there is another reference in the book of Joshua, Joshua actually chapter 11, where Joshua defeats a king named Jabin, that they're assuming is actually still this king, that he actually burns the city of Hazar to the ground. Now, the question is here is, obviously, what happens? Well, it seems, it would seem, by the way that you read this, that... Uh, the king Javen actually is either like kind of reclaim power He's either rebuilding the city or he's rebuilt the city and so he's got some he's got a little bit of his strength back here right, so we actually have a revisitation of somebody that was in the past and um, We also see That this is really the only time in the book of Judges where Israel is actually attacked from inside uh, inside their own uh, their own kingdom, or like the, the territory that they're really supposed to be, because what you're going to see, if you I, I apologize if you can't really see it, you can find maps like this pretty easily. There, there's several of them, but you're going to see that Deborah is basically right right here. She kind of like smack dab. Is is where this is all happening because you got uh, Jericho you got uh, the fact that we've got uh, the the, 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 uh, Jordan River here and so basically all this fighting that you're going to read about is happening right here in the dead center of Israel right this is really the only time that this happens in the entire book most of the time what's happening is you have these guys these kings Moabites and, and others that are coming from the outside that are almost like marauders raiders whatever that are coming to pillage they're taking their stuff, and then they're getting out. Uh, and Now, you do find in other cases where they actually come, and they'll take over a piece, uh, a piece of territory, right? And so then they have to kind of fight to get them out of that. So what we see, though, is Deborah uh, is called a prophetess. Uh, she's known as being wise. She's known as being gifted. In fact, uh, let's see. Let's take a few seconds here. Uh, we also see in verse 4 that she actually is married. But at the same time, we don't really see a lot. It doesn't really mention anything about her husband. It just says the fact that she is married. But the fact that she uh, shows incredible leadership skills and leadership ability. In verse 5, it says that she holds court under the palm of Deborah Deborah, uh, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites would come to her uh, to have their disputes decided. So in this case, we see that Deborah is very much acting like what we would think of as a very literal judge, like she's like she's hearing your side, she's hearing your side. Oh, you know, we're going to give the verdict to this person for this mount to have a fair. So the incredible thing here to think about, and again, uh, this is one of the things I love about the Bible, is you got to remember this is a time, right? And this is really for, for centuries where women in most civilizations in most cultures simply did not have a voice. Like it did not happen. So to me, it's such an incredible thing here where we actually see that this is a time, and this is not the only time in scripture we see this, but God is basically saying, Hey, I don't care if you're a man or a woman, because if you've got a heart, you're going to seek after me and you're going to listen to what I'm asking you to do. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to use you, and you're going to make a big impact. So we see that uh, she settles disputes. Um, so what happens is basically when, uh, uh, the, when Sisera, when we hear about the Sisera and coming in to invade and all that stuff, uh, she actually sends for this guy, uh, Barak. And now Barak is going to be uh, kind of her sidekick, her partner, kind of through this endeavor, because she sends for Barak in verse 6. And then what she says to him, the Lord uh, the God of Israel commands you. So this is Deborah telling Barak, go take with you 10,000 men uh, from Naphtali uh, and Zebulon and lead the way to Mount Tabor. And in verse seven, she says, uh, I will lure Sisera, uh, the commander of Jabin's army and his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River. And then I'm going to give him into your hands. Now, does anybody and this is where I want to ask you, if you would, uh, to use a little bit of cr- critical thinking. Um, why do you think that Deborah is telling Barack to go lure, uh, lure these chariots, lure this army basically down by this river valley? Does anybody have a, a clue what might be happening? What, what, what this is set, setting, up for? My son found this out by the way on the night of prom. Okay. You don't know. So here's what's going to happen. Uh, hold on. Let me get back to my picture so I don't forget. Alright, so obviously we all know that this is a, no, this specifically is a wheel, Wheel. okay. Now despite the fact that he's actually got eight wheel drive, okay, a little (laughs) horse joke, (laughs) that's bad. Okay. So he's got eight wheels to him, but guess what? This thing is not light, okay. This is not like, let's go take a mountain bike and out go out ride close on some Sandy this thing is heavy it's got two heavy jokers on top of it with the horse is trying to pull so basically what what happens what what, can, what do you find happening sometimes especially that, that can happen around waterways stuck in, stuck
1: in the water yeah Blood, it watery. gets muddy
0: cut get, so here here's the one here's the one tactical advantage okay that you have if you're foot soldiers versus chariots if you can cause like to get to a, a rocky area, right, where they can't roll, or if you can get them to a wetter area where they can get stuck, then guess what? You got the advantage, because now all of a sudden, remember, you most likely outnumber this this uh, army. Uh, in some cases, easily a hundred to one. They not can just
1: mention, not to mention that the chariot riders now have to control their horses from attacking them.
0: Well, they're probably it's a it's a fleet like for a, your own like self. A, yeah, like it, a it's a like, like yeah, it's it, It's a it's so what we what we find here is that we find that she calls uh but the interesting thing happens here is in verse 8. How about this? Read this here. Can anybody want to read just just verse 8 for me? Anybody want to read be willing to? Yeah, go ahead. Barak told her I will
1: go but only if you
0: go with me." So, Barack is supposed to be, obviously, I'm going to guess that Barack is chosen because he's seen as a mighty man of valor, right? He's supposed to be a guy that's going to help lead uh, these men into, into battle, right? Why do you think, and again, this you can just, I want to hear your thoughts. Why do you think that Barack says to Deborah, look, I'll go do this, but I'm only going... If you go with me, does anybody anybody want to take a stab in the dark at it? Take a guess. It
2: was a crazy idea. He wanted assurance that she believed in it too. Okay. Her power. He he had faith if she went that he would be okay.
0: Okay. Okay. So now, so now, it, 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 and to be completely honest with you, okay, we. I don't know, like it doesn't clearly say in scripture why he says that to her, right? But that is definitely the clear indication, isn't it? The clear indication is basically saying that Barack is saying like, well, look, this sounds pretty crazy to me because I know what those guys can do, but if you'll go with me, I'll go, you know, because then maybe I have a stand of fighting chance. You know what I mean? So we see that Barack is both kind of willing. But at the same time, he's a little scared. And so he really also kind of has this like lack of faith where he's wanting to go. And so one of the things that uh, that I, I love is verse 9. Verse 9, Deborah says very well. She says, I'll go with you. Uh, but because of the way that you are going about this, the honor will not be yours. Uh, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. Okay. And, and so... Uh, you know, it's one of those things where where Deborah's like, okay, buddy. I mean, if you don't want to like, if you don't just want to listen and obey God, I guess I'm. I guess let me go pack my bag and we'll head out and we'll go do this thing. Uh, but guess what? You're not going to get the glory out of this. Somebody else is. There's going to be a woman that's going to get the glory out of it. Now, um, by we get to verse 11 here. Uh, by the time we get to verse 11, we get into when you're reading this story, uh, it probably sounds like some super weird random information, right? Because the whole time so far, you're up to like, okay, we're upping to a point where we're going to get a battle between Sisera and and God's people. And Deborah's going to go, and it's going to be great. And Barak's going to lead the way. And by verse 11, uh, we get this random verse that says, now uh, uh, Heber, Herber, uh, uh, the Kenite, uh, he had left the other Kenites. And so his descendants were the descendants of Hoab, which is Moses' brother-in-law. Okay, so here's what we got to take away from this first: that we have to understand that the people that he's talking about here are related to Moses, which means by in turn they're related to the nation of Israel. Okay, they're not the tribe of Israel, they're not they're not they're not Jewish people, but they're related to them through Moses, uh, through his brother-in-law. So. Uh, but what this guy did is he pitched his tent near a tree. Okay. So what we're actually going to find here is that, uh, uh, we get a little bit of a new person that enters the, the scene and we don't really a hundred percent know why this happens. We see that obviously, uh, the, the Canites they, they weren't Jewish the, the descendants, but they also, they lived, they, th- these people, they lived in the territory where Israel was okay like they were just kind of common inhabitants basically it seems that because of the uh, the fact that in the past they had had uh, some kind they showed kindness to Israel like they worked together so that basically they're still living here well this one guy that's part of this tribe this one guy decides you know what I'm gonna split and what he does is he actually leaves his people he leaves the rest of his crew he decides to go a little bit further north and what we find is that he actually pitches camp and he kind of makes good uh with the king um with king jabin he makes good with jabin and so he thinks that because jabin has the chariots that he's probably going to be the one to reign victorious so he's like he's like hedging his bets he's sitting here going like okay guys like he's got the chariots He's probably going to reign or he's probably going to win. So let's get in good with him because maybe if we get in good with him, we'll get some of the spoils, maybe some of the land, some of the territory. Some of the good stuff is going to flow over to us because we were willing to take a time to go with him. So by verse 13, though, okay, by the time we get to verse 13, we see that Sisera gets his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him, and they go down to the Kishon River. Now, when they get down there, just like which we talked about before, uh, we see the fact that the, there, there seems to be some precipitation, okay There seems to be a, a situation where uh, it's wet, it's rain. And, and here's the crazy part to think that happened. Now you got to remember uh, if we know anything about this general area, including all the land over here and all the land up here and all the land over here, is this area of the world, right? is typically what? deserts. Hot, Hot, dry. Now, if y'all watch National Geographic or the Discovery Channel or whatever else, you're going to find that even in desert places, there are dry seasons and there are wet seasons, right? So the thing is, is we see that something and, and again, this is kind of a miracle situation that happens here because if you're Sisera and you know that, yes, you're outnumbered but you got your iron chariots, would you dare to send your iron chariots into a spot that you thought that you would get stuck in? Absolutely not. No No, is the correct answer. (laughs) That is right. Yeah. You would never do that because you would be like, well, that's suicide. You know what I mean? Why would we ever bother? So, uh, really what's thought to happen here is that it actually rains that these chariots actually get stuck. And so after this, we see that, uh, uh, Sisera and whatever men can, Basically, are running for their lives. They're fleeing. They're going everywhere. It's bananas. It's chaos, right? And so as it as it as it's raining, and as it's raining, they've got stuck. Cicero flees. And really, um, what we see here is as he's running for his life, we get to verse 17. And verse 17, would anybody like to read that for me? Verse 17 out of Judges here. Anybody? Jump one in. Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> However, Cicero fled away on his feet to the tent of jail, wipe of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. Okay, so what we see by verse 17 is that what seemed to be like this random little bit of information in verse 11, now all the pieces are starting to come together. So what we find is that Sisera, he comes to a tent, the tent of Jael, who's the wife of, uh, of Heber, or however you want to say my man's name, Herbert is what I like to call him, really. <laughs> Uh, now he gets to this tent. Okay. And he gets, he shows up and, and, and first off, let's just point out to you that it is highly, um, unlikely, highly improbable that a man would be allowed to enter another woman's tent. That is not say that woman's husband. Okay. So let's say that that's a highly unlikely situation, but remember Sisra, he's not thinking about highly unlikely situation. He's thinking about the army that's coming to cut his head off. Like, so he's just like, help me somebody. So he shows up and he's like, oh, my girl, your boy met with my king and we're all good. And we're like in peace and we're in unity together. So can I, can, can you hide me? And this is probably my favorite part of the entire story here, because as we see uh, through verses 18 and 19, It says that Jael, she went out to meet Sisera. She said to him, come, my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. I love it because she's putting him at ease. She's just chilling him out. She's making sure he's ready to go. And then as she she goes, she entered the tent. Uh, She put a covering over top of him to, to just, you know, calm him down and get his nerve. And in verse 19, he tells her that I'm thirsty. And she says, please give me some water. Oh, oh, sweetheart, sugar baby, pu- pumpkin bear. Don't worry, water is not what we're going to give you. No, no, no. What is she says? Uh she's got she says, I got some some milk for you here, and we're just going to get you uh we're going to get you calm right down cuz nothing says calm like warm milk. Does anybody by the way, has anybody drink warm milk? Do you, you no, do you? I've I've never ever. I've never had the thought and notion be like, "You know what I need? Warm milk." Okay? That's beside that's not anything to do with anything, but I mean, he had he had if some milk.
2: milk. If you put milk in tea, the milk is.
0: Dead. Yeah, I, I don't if know that about that either. That's tea, what we that's what we got I sugar think. for. I don't need anything else in my tea besides sugar. The kids, but kids
2: drink warm milk. Johnny did it so he was like six years old, or he wouldn't. Sleep.
0: really so warm milk just helped him kind of put him there it's just for me it, 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 if it I don't drink it milk. if i if I don't if I don't drink it cold like after I get it out of the fridge like and it sits for just a little bit and it's not like ice cold I can't do it no more it, it I'm just more like
1: breast milk because
0: the yep. breast milk is warm yep so but uh so anyway here we go he says he, he, he says uh he says please give me some water she opens some milk she gives him a drink she covers him up she basically is tucking him and it's, see, everything seems so great. And in verse 21, she says, but Jael, Herbert's wife, she goes and she picks up a tent peg and a hammer. And you think, well, why is she going to pick up this tent peg and hammer? And then she goes quietly to him as he lays asleep, exhausted. She drives a tent peg through my man's head into the ground. And I love it that it actually needs to say, and he died. Because <laughs> I couldn't imagine that you could go through that and and then be like, Oh, what happened? You know, like I just, I totally, I totally didn't, I miss, I I totally missed that. And uh, I I can imagine that as this happens, uh, you know, she is walking out and she, I I just, I don't know that she says this, but she walks out of the tent and she just screams, nailed it. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) like, I don't, I I don't, I don't have any proof to tell you yet, but that's just what it seems like to me. But, but so here's the question. Okay. Here's the question I have for you. Why? Why does she do this? Why does she do this? Remember, her husband made a deal with the other king that's fighting against Israel. So why would she, in turn, when Sisera comes in, give him the old tent peg to the head trick?
1: I think she knew her heritage. You think so? Possibly.
0: Yeah. Anybody else? Other thoughts?
1: Or she
0: was trying to stick it to her husband. <laughs> I guess you that could be one
1: mean way. Like you
0: like them? <laughs> so it, it's it's interesting, and so the for me, and, and again, we don't we don't really know this. I mean, it, it, basically, we just have to take to see kind of what it implies, and kind of go from there. But basically, one of the things that to me it implies is that she. Was probably not as in love with this arrangement of leaving her family and their tradition And all the people she was connected with to go up here to ally herself with somebody else who wasn't her family Who wasn't connected to her and she was just like, you know what my husband's not here I'm going to take care of business. What I also love about it is the fact that this is really, uh The second part, two part, first part, part A, point B, however you want to point to it, of Deborah, the fulfillment of the prophecy, that basically says that you're not actually going to get the victory here, that there's going to be a woman. Because I know when you read that, you're thinking, oh, that means Deborah gets the victory. Well, yeah, kind of. Deborah does get the victory. She actually spends all the next chapter having a song written about her. Uh, but. But really, I, I, this woman is the woman who literally, she pinned the end of the battle. Like, that's it. Because she basically comes over and says, hey, guys, come on. And I think I got something in here you want to see. You know what I mean? I think I think you want to check this out. But um, again, really, I love this story uh, because it really shows us, though, that God really, he's, he's equipping both men and women for leadership. He basically says, listen, if you're willing to listen to me and to my commands, to my words, that like we're in this thing together. We also see though, again, Deborah was this wise, respected woman who had wisdom and gifts and talents. Basically all of chapter five for the most part is a song that's written about her. Uh, they would do this very often in commemoration when big battles would happen and they would basically, uh, sing this, uh, you know, have songs written about them that we sing. Obviously they're not, uh, they don't follow our normal praise and worship chords. You know, what we would sing nowadays, you know, it'd be a little bit weird to sing them now, but that's, part of the oral tradition that they would do to spend down through generations because for a lot of the times that's how a lot of these traditions kind of went down through all these people um one of the things that i also thought is interesting though out of deborah's song is is if you actually turn to uh, chapter 5 verse 23 uh verse 23 you actually see that deborah's got a little bit of a mouth on her because she starts throwing some curses out (laughs) Not, okay, not four letter curses, not the ones you're thinking, right? But she literally starts throwing some curses out where she's actually calling out the people in the tribe of Israel who did not answer the call because there were some people, because again, you want to look at, uh, you look at this and and you got to remember that each of these tribes is basically, if you want to think of it in the almost not quite sort of thing, think about it as 12 states, right? And when the founding of our country was happening, you know, we had a handful of colonies and they all couldn't get their acts together, could they? Some people wanted this. Some people wanted to do this. Some wanted to go to war. Some didn't want to go to war. And so basically you have the same thing, just an older version of that, because you had in the, each tribe, you had leaders in the tribes that were broken down by clans, which is clans is basically... Uh, you know, if the tribe is everybody in that family, the clan is another larger version of that part of the family group. That's inside of it. Multiple clans make up the tribe. Right. And so you have out of this, you have some people who's just like, you know what? Like Dan, Dan's Dan was a lot of times. One of the ones is like, you know what? We got to see like Dan's like the beach people. Like, you know, we got the beach. We're good. Like, I don't need, we don't need to go to, to do any of this other stuff. But she really takes the opportunity, and, and, and she, she calls out throughout the, the song here uh, a little bit of the ones who didn't actually come to help. And um, smack. she is talking smack. And, and not, by the way, you think if somebody talks smack about you, like it's bad, this is written down for all the time. Like, this is, like, <laughs> eternal. Like, this is the most throwdown smack that you can have, right? But this story I really think it also helps to show us that it's that it's just as much about what we do or don't do than what we do right because you have barack here who barack if he was smarter if he had a little bit more courage a little bit more faith then he could have gone off and chapter five would have probably been written about him But it wasn't because it was things that he wasn't willing to do or he wasn't willing to do without uh, Deborah's help. And we also find uh, that Othniel and Deborah, who uh, we covered him last week. These are the only two judges that are really seen as leading the, the nation here. After this, it breaks down into much smaller uh, where we get um, judges that dealing with maybe certain sections or certain tribes, but not necessarily "quote unquote" the whole tribe. All right, I wanted to spend the rest of our time. I don't even know if we could do this. Well, I, I would probably say we can't really adequately do this with the time left we have. But I really wanted to take a moment here because um, it's something that um, I get. I do get asked from time to time, but something that we don't always like have enough. Time context to kind of get into here. Uh, and that's really to look to use Deborah to help us take a, a, a little bit of a larger look and a larger example at the role of women in leadership, both in the Bible and even today in our our times, where we have here at, at Discover or at the church in general, the Big C church, right? Everywhere at church. And so I um and, and I, I want to say that um I'll try to cover some stuff the best I can, but but before I try to jump in to try to like just rush through some scripture or try to give you some stuff, I want to hear um, maybe what your perspective is or maybe even what like if you grew up, how did you grow up? Like when, when it came to women in the church, how is that viewed? Because there's about a, a trillion different. Examples of this whether the church that you grew up in versus the church that I grew up in versus what denomination Maybe you were in if you were in a church or if you didn't grow to church at all growing up but what was your perspective as far as Women in leadership in the church and I mean and this doesn't matter uh, the Catholic Church is dealing with this There's so many places that are dealing with this question and this issue and we'll take a few seconds to look at some scripture that I want to encourage you to write down because uh, I don't just want to teach you what to think. I just want to help show you uh, my perspective and show you some scripture from that, and then you can kind of make up your own own decision and your own mind about that. But before we get into that, anybody want to jump in? Uh, I know I just like dropped a loaded question on you, like women in leadership in the church. I'll, go. All we have is answer. If people need more time to make up their mind
1: because it's something I've... Thought about a bunch. I was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. so obviously women had, like, zero place in the church. Um, they just served and helped in, in a very subservient position. And uh, But then when I actually um, became a Christian, it was in a non-denominational type setting where women started to have more of a <laughs> voice. But to be perfectly honest, the first time I ever heard a woman preach to a mixed congregation was either amy or tracy gotcha and i loved it yeah um i had seen women preach to um groups of women before i have seen that i had seen them in my not in my the various churches i went to as a christian i've seen them get up to the pulpit and preach in like worship settings or give a you know a prophetic word, but I had never heard them actually say a sermon until here.
0: And I really liked it. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. (laughs) Awesome. Anybody else want to jump in? Maybe, uh, with again, what you grew up at your own, if you, if you have, yeah, go ahead.
2: So I didn't grow up in church, but when I started coming to church, learned a lot of things so i um there was a christian conference that we would attend my church would attend in hershey park every year i went three or four times i absolutely loved it um and there was i i guess baptist there there was so everybody was christian you know there was jewish there was christian there was every denomination and so you you learned a little bit more different things and apparently like i learned that the baptists do not um believe in women having any rights they are only to be teachers they are not to be preachers and and people are literally tall i wasn't but friends of mine that i was attending these things with were literally taught and shamed by baptist family members that they were the devil because they were you know preaching or whatever i also in my short time learned um uh, an ex-boyfriend. He was a Apostolic. I don't know if that's the name. Apostolic. Apostolic. Very old school. Mm-hmm. All all old school. His church was like is his family. They're all like sixty to eighty. But it, it um when I graduated college, he was there and um he his I had a pink dress on, and they are real 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 about like dress code. Um mm-hmm. you 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 are not allowed to wear tight clothes you are not allowed to wear pants usually you have to wear baggy dresses you have to cover up your face when you pray when somebody gets down on the floor prays, because i've been there a couple times will throw a blanket on you you women are to not be out they are the teachers they are the cookers and they are not allowed to speak it isn't all men speaking mm-hmm. and and those were so in like a year or two of me starting out christianity i'm like learning all these different things of what i don't want and what i don't believe in obviously mm-hmm. uh, my dad was raised roman catholic he went to catholic school his entire life until he graduated high school that is why he did not bring his kids to church mm. and i'm sure anybody who knows Anything knows probably why. He grew up in Washington, DC in a Catholic school. Very mean nuns, etc. But he he has never raised his family, and he can tell you every part of the Bible. He has it memorized. But he has never raised his family that women don't have voices. I mean, we're rural arts. we speak, we have voices. Mm-hmm. You know, we it's never been that way. But those are just examples. Yeah. I didn't experience, but people close to me were experiencing those things. And that is scary, yeah. especially for somebody who's starting to follow God. Yeah. If you get put in the wrong place, oh yeah, it could really well. Oh it, and, it's scary,
0: and that's and that's the thing. So, because because again, um, the difference really for for a lot of people is 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 kind of like what you're strictly taught. The church believes, right? Which, as time has gone on, the church is it very good with that? Because we're like, no, it's a hot topic issue. You know what I mean? And we're like, Ooh, that's going to hurt some people. That's going to fit. So we're not going to talk about that. So there's like the, what you're taught, like literally taught to believe. And then there's necessarily some impressions that you get. Like says, maybe no, nobody ever taught you that you can't do this, but you can look around and kind of see how it is. Shouldn't. You can kind of figure it out. Um, real quick before I jump in with, uh, some things I wanted to cover. Anybody else want to share? I mean, I don't want to rush you by any means. I I also want to respect your time as as much though as we can. Anybody else? No. Okay. So so here's what I'm going to do. All right. I'm going to try to go through, uh, again, I don't have a ton of time. So if you have more questions about this, please make sure you see me because I want to make sure that I'm painting this picture from my perspective as clear as I can. Okay. So one of the things that we find here, uh, through denominations, through churches, through leadership, is really not a biblical authority issue. Okay, really the issue is biblical interpretation. All right. So the scripture says a lot about a lot of things, but just like anything, it's our job uh, to really kind of help receive that information, interpret it, and kind of figure out what God's trying to say out of that. So. I want to give you an example, and uh, this is just a very brief example before we dive in. That, uh, and here's what First Peter says: First Peter two eighteen. This has nothing to do with women, but it does say, "Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your master, not only to those who are good and considerate, but to also to those who are harsh." Okay. Now, that's not one anybody puts on their mantle. Right. That's not anyone. Everybody's like, you never see that on the Hobby Lobby plaque store. You know what I mean? The things to put in your house. And but here's what you also will understand uh, that uh, the problem is, is that that scripture for a very long time in the church, in the Christian church, was used to justify slavery. At the same time, we all know that there's plenty of other scriptures that actually would say that slavery isn't right. Now, here's what we also have to do. We also have to remember that the Bible talks about slavery itself. But you've got to remember that this is a slightly different type of slavery. And I'm not trying to say any type of slavery is good, because it's not. But you also got to remember, we're dealing with a slavery based off of racial, your color of your skin. Bible isn't dealing with the color of your skin stuff. It's economic it's a matter of fact because in in israel there were there were slaves if you couldn't pay your bill if you took out too much debt if something happened you could be put into slaves but guess what they also had in israel they also had rules and laws that actually would reset after so many years where situations could get reset so that if you were in this case guess what If enough time, if you hadn't worked your way out of it to to a certain point to pay off the debt that you had, you could still be freed by time. Obviously, (laughs) obviously the American form of slavery did no such thing. Once you were in, you were in. And we had churches and all sorts of people cutting up stuff. So could we interpret that scripture to say that the Bible's pro-slavery? If you just read that scripture, you
1: to, absolutely. yeah,
0: absolutely you could. So that's what we're going to kind of talk about here. We're going to talk about, we're going to read some scripture. And I, and again, I, please don't don't just assume that I'm trying to shove my thought process on you. I want you to, to have the opportunity to think for yourself where it stands. But we see both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Multiple examples of women in leadership. Okay, we just talked about one in Deborah. We also see Moses' sister uh, Miriam in Exodus. She does. Uh, she actually helps to lead. She's one of the leaders as they're coming out of Egypt and as they wander the desert. We also say Hudalka in Second 2 Kings twenty twenty two, where she actually is part of the priest, uh, and and she actually has people coming to her for asking for for input and counsel, and uh, we see that she actually, in 2 Kings, she's giving instruction to people, which again, in most circumstances, you wouldn't find in a lot of other cultures, right? So, and again, we have Deborah, but in the New Testament, okay, we also remember that for the most part, most societies, most cultures throughout human history have been male driven right patriarchal okay so they're basically led by led by a guy but it's incredible that we see through scripture that yes there is a lot of that but we also see that women have a voice and women take leadership and we even see in the new testament right in the new testament uh, by the time jesus shows up on the scene that women uh, by law have very low status in society in fact in jesus's time Did you know that women were not allowed to, uh, if there was like a court case and somebody was testifying against someone else, a woman was not allowed to be brought in to testify against another person because her testimony wasn't considered valuable or worthy enough. So we see that Jesus walks into this uh, scenario and Jesus has a really unique view because there's a lot of rabbis of the time in this early, uh, the early first century there where we see that they actually, they wouldn't even look at women let alone have women followers. And Jesus pretty much, if you read the gospel everywhere you read, Jesus has women following him around. Like he's got some some of his key figures that we see in the New Testament are women. And and for us, like it's so easy for us in 2022, or you know what I mean? It's so easy for us to look at that and think, oh, you know, Jesus has some women around him. But we don't understand that like for this time, that was like revolutionary because it was so against the cultural norm. And Jesus just, he just doesn't care. <laughs> That's just one of the things I love about. Jesus said a lot of crazy stuff and he's like, either get it or don't. I don't care because I know where I'm doing. I know where I'm going. But uh, I want to give you a, a handful of scripture here that kind of shows us um, some of Jesus's, uh, so where Jesus actually takes place. And then we're going to get, uh, with the last couple minutes I have left, to Paul who most uh, controversial things when it comes written about women come from the Apostle Paul. Okay, so we're, we're gonna get there. All right So for example though John 4 27. Okay, John 4 27 We find that Jesus goes out of his way to talk to a woman a Samaritan woman by the way Which is culturally inappropriate Jews did not talk with Samaritan women He decides to sit down with her at a well And he actually has uh, this incredible time where he ministers to us and and we actually get to hear this woman's testimony. So she actually gets to share her story. It's recorded in the gospel for all the time, right? That's incredible because that didn't happen. We see in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50, we see a woman who's known by the community as sinful. She actually gets down, she puts perfume on Jesus' feet and she wipes his feet with her hair. Now I know that sounds really weird, but that is an ultimate form of submission for somebody to do something like that, and it was considered a, a scandalous act that Jesus, what, who's a rabbi, who is this respected person, would <clears throat> excuse me, would actually allow a woman to do that. <clears throat> I had a Dino nugget earlier, and it's coming back to get me. <laughs> I love Dino
2: nuggets.
0: <clears throat> All right, but we also. Uh, That was Luke 7, 36 through 50. All right. We also see in Luke, Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we see that Jesus is traveling with twelve his 12 disciples, but it also that several women are traveling with Jesus as well, and that they actually are financially supporting the ministry that he is taking part of. And again, this is unprecedented in this day. This simply did not happen. Okay. Luke 10 Verse thirty-eight, we see that uh, as rabbis had the disciples that were pretty much always with, uh, always men, that we see that we got Mary that sits at the Lord's feet as his disciple, and we also see uh, there is there, and again, I, I, I'm trying. I know I say this. i have said this like seven times already. There is no other archaeological information. There's no other information to date to show that there are any other rabbis of this time. That have women in their ministry that they have women followers none there is no evidence for it Jesus is the only one which to me again is just an incredible thing so we see not only is the Old Testament have multiple examples and we didn't even go through all of them I just gave you a few highlights but we see the New Testament we see Jesus has key uh, people key women in his ministry they're in his role and we also see one of the incredible things again I told you women weren't allowed to bear testimony. Anybody remember who was the first ones to find Jesus? Exactly. And and that's just like, and again, we read that and we read that, okay, some women were the first ones to find him. No, no, the fact that that is recorded in scripture is an extraordinary thing to say that, guess what? The viewpoint of these women is validated that they seem proof that Jesus wasn't in the tomb, that he wasn't actually there. So it's just incredible. Now, when we get to Paul, okay, we get to Paul and we get to Paul's teachings. We're going to go through a few things. And I'm going to show you that uh, before I tell you about the controversial stuff about Paul, let's talk about some of the other stuff Paul said about women. And we'll kind of lay the groundwork for that. Okay, here we go. Acts 1 chapter 4. Okay. Acts 1, chapter 4, we see that women are present in the upper room. They're present in the upper room at the birthing of the church. Okay, So what we're finding is that in the beginning, the very foundations of where the church was. Yes, do we have the apostles, the, 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 the disciples? It's not Remember, it's not 12 yet because we haven't voted nobody in. It's just the 11 because Judas is gone. right? But we find them and we find some other prominent leaders here that are up there. Women are part of this group. And in, by Acts chapter 2, when we see that the Spirit of God is poured out, right? This is where the Holy Spirit falls on everybody. That guess what? It's poured out on both men and women. and women. So if God doesn't want women to be part of his church, then why in the world would he bless them with the Holy Spirit? That just doesn't make any sense, does it? So anyway, all right? As we see, he does this. He pours it out on both men and women. Uh, we see by Acts 21, Philip one of the apostles, right? Uh, he, uh, he actually is described as having daughters, daughters who have, uh, who prophesied. He actually has daughters who were part, they actually sh- showed part of the fivefold ministry gifts. They f- showed part of those uh, giftings and talents. We also see um, that by Acts, I mean, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 31, that we see that it says, for you can all prophesy, in turn uh in turn so that everyone can be taught and instructed and encouraged and basically when paul is writing this out remember paul is writing this to the corinthian church and he literally he's not saying hey guys make sure the girls sit in the back of the room they keep their heads covered and they don't say anything he's saying listen everybody's open for this by acts chapter 18 okay so towards the end of Acts chapter 18 we have two of what i the, i love these, the names of these people it's Aquila and Priscilla, all right. Aquila and Priscilla uh, are often mentioned, and here's the incredible thing: when you talk, when you read about Priscilla or Aquila and Priscilla, okay, scripture is scripture is written in a way to create a, a sense of uh, honoring the most important. Okay, so very often when you see uh, someone listed, it, whoever the most important, like whoever the senior leader is, basically is named first, right? Whoever the second one is, is named second. Interesting thing, when you go back and you read about Aquila and Priscilla, is that it starts out Aquila, which is him, Priscilla is her, it actually starts switching where she's actually referenced before he does, which implies that she actually had a slightly greater role in leading the church as well. We also see this, by the way, uh, when Paul starts going out, Paul is actually sometimes the second one referred to, and then as Paul gains in uh, his leadership and authority, he's put first, and Barnabas and others are are put afterwards. Okay, now the debate, the debatable passages, the questionable ones, the ones that, according to what denomination and where you've gone, uh, are probably ones that have been thrown. uh, in your face, or you've heard them at some point in time, or maybe you've read them and you're like, Jesus, did you really say that? Like, okay, so here we go. All right. There are two primary passages that this is in question. Okay. The first one you find in first Corinthians chapter 14 <clears throat> verses 33 and 36. So first Corinthians 14. And the second one is first Timothy chapter two verses eight and 15. By the way, I have a theory. I have no way to prove this theory until we get to heaven. I have a theory that Paul was having a rough day or a rough week when he wrote First and Second Timothy. Okay, because if you read it, it's a little bit more aggressive in tone than some of the other stuff. So I could be totally wrong with that. He just maybe maybe may what it is what it is, but that's what I think. All right. So when we talk about this, we need to talk about and understand the ideas of something. If something is universally accepted. So in other words, universally accepted means it's good for everybody. If it's good for me, it's good for you. It doesn't matter if you're a guy, you're a girl, it's universally accepted. Okay. Or if it's restricted, obviously what's restricted mean? It might be good for one, but not the other. All right. I want to give you a couple examples and you tell me, okay, if it's restricted or universal. All right. This is not really that tricky. I don't think anyway. All right. Uh, Romans 16 talks about greet each other with a holy kiss. Is that a universal thing? Should we just be kissing each other all the time? Or is that a restrictive Restricted. thing? Restrictive. Please don't kiss me. Okay. That, so. I'm barely a hugger. Like barely. All right. Like I'm not, I'm not that big. Like so it's not be like, all right, I'll give you a handshake. All right. So that, that's right. Restrictive. All right. Uh, what does the Lord require? This is Michael. What does the Lord require of you to act justly in love and mercy, to walk humbly with your God universal or restrictive universal. Universal. universal you're catching on all right how about this first uh, Timothy 523 stop drinking only water and use a little bit of wine when your stomach feels ill when you have frequent illness restrictive Restricted. or Restricted. restrictive right okay because he's not just saying party on Wayne no he's actually saying like listen there's a reason you do this because you're feeling you're feeling a little under the weather get better all right what about this this is my command that you love one another Universal. Universal. universal, very good. That is universal. All right. Uh, let's see. Now, concerning the things of which I wrote to you, 1 Corinthians seven twenty one. It is good for a man to touch a woman. Universal or restrictive? restrictive? Restrictive. Restrictive. Yes. Very well. Restrictive. All right. There's only certain men only supposed to touch certain women. It's the one that you got a wedding ring. On, all right. We're just going to leave it at that. All right. Here's what we see, and I'm already running out of time, so bear with me. I'm going to try to make this as quick as possible. Okay. We see in 1 Corinthians 14 that Paul is really what's happening here. And, and I don't have time to read the whole verse. I want to really encourage you to go back and read it because you need to understand because there will come a point in time if you're doing a year through the word or whatever, you're going to come to this verse. And if you're not ready for it, it's going to kind of smack you in the head. And you're going to ask a lot of questions, right? When you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we have to realize that Paul whether it's Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, all of these, these books of the Bible. Okay. Cause we look at them as books, but you know what they are? They're letters. These books are letters. This is Paul who in many cases, most cases, he actually was part of the people to come in and start these churches. But here, Paul's a church planner. Paul comes into these churches, he starts them, and he gets them going. He has people that they start bringing together, and he teaches them the gospel. He teaches them about Jesus, but then what does he do? He's a church planter. He balances. He rolls out. Guys, I'm out of here. I'm going to the next place. They need me. Right? So he starts one, he leaves, and he goes here. But we all know this because you've been in church, and you go to work, and you deal with people, and you got people in your family. People suck sometimes, and we screw (laughs) up. Right? We mess up, don't we? Like we we do. So sometimes Paul would do the thing where he's got this church going and he goes over here, but then he gets word saying, Hey, these jokers over here is acting crazy. You won't believe the stuff they're doing. And so and so Paul's like, Wow, let me get the quill out and let me get some paper. Guys, can you please stop? And like he like literally would write the letter to these churches. And so that's what we're seeing. Paul is actually trying to correct problems that are arising in Corinth. And so what he has, what we see basically is he Paul's basically telling in this verse where he's like, tell the women to stop talking, stop interrupting. And, of course, all the men are like, can my wife hear this scripture when I'm watching TV? No, I didn't say that. My wife is not here. I'm not how to say that. It's on podcast form. Okay, it's bad. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But here, here's the deal, right? But Paul is yeah. basically saying, no, no, no. What's happening here is there's probably—what's what, what, ant- what's being thought here is that there is an issue where some women in the church who aren't really—they don't know what's going on yet. They're asking questions. And, and Paul says, listen, instead of asking questions when we're all coming together to worship, ladies, I need you to ask your husbands when you get home. Because you got to remember, again, this is a, a society, society in which most of the time— Women were not as educated as men; they just weren't. So what's happening is Paul's trying to have a teaching thing here, where he says, "Listen, instead of like disrupting everything that's going on, can you find this information out at home? Kind of learn, learn what we're talking about here, and then when we come together, then you'll understand." Okay. So that's that one. Okay. Um, by the way, in case you were wondering, there is no place in the Old Testament. There, it, it, there's nowhere that it, where it says that a woman is to be silent and submissive to a man. There are a lot of people who think that. There's a lot of women who think that they got beef with scripture because they like, I ain't going to be this submissive to no man. It never says that. It, you know what it does say? You know what it does say? It actually says the works to be submissive to what? One another.
1: One
0: another. It's a joint thing. Mm-hmm. So guess what? My wife is submissive to me, but you know why? Because I'm submissive to her. Because for us, we can't make it a race to the top. We got to make it a race to the bottom. We got to see who can be the humblest to out humble the other one. All right. That's your free bit of marriage advice for the night. All right. <laughs> second one here, and then we're gonna wrap up. All right. It's First Timothy chapter two, uh, verses eight to fifteen. Now, I told you if you read Timothy, all right, First and Second Timothy this way, it's Paul sounds a little aggressive in some of this stuff. In fact, Paul, Paul and Timothy throws shade at quite a few people, right? Uh, he really does. Like, Paul is, like, really going at it in this time. But basically, what it's thought here is that at Ephesus is what most likely we're talking about, that Paul's, Paul's trying to instruct Timothy on how to handle some of these brand-new converts. And so what's happening, and this is where uh, you were talking, uh, Courtney, about how a lot of times uh, women are told— you know, you, you got to wear skirts, you can't do this, you can't do this. And this is that scripture that it's referencing in, okay? Is Paul upset with you if you don't wear skirts to church? Yep. No, that's not what he's saying at all. In fact, what's most likely happening here is these are probably wealthy women in the community that kind of wanted to, like, dress up. You ever wanted to, like, you ever seen somebody Longer who's going out? It. Yeah, like, you got people, you ever see people, like, that walk into Applebee's and look like they went to the Ritz-Carlton and, and you're like, why? who are you trying to impress? Like, that, that is just too much We went to that.
1: Applebee's after prom, and yeah. we, we, looked over, we were see, overdressed, and, but, but still.
0: still but see, but, you, but you know, that's what I mean. You, you, you walk in, and you're like, you are not dressed for the situation. <laughs> and basically, that's what Paul is trying to say. Paul's like, we got people showing up, and you were, like, trying for to attract uh, attention for all the wrong reasons. Like, you were not here to submit yourself to God. You were here just to show off your new bling in your hair. And so Paul is basically trying to say, listen, we have to make sure that whether it's men or women that uh, that, that we're actually uh, not not basically uh, harming other people around us when we all come to worship together and so we just see that there are so many there are so many other scriptures that, that I don't have time tonight to talk with you about, but there are so many other scriptures that I, it, to me okay and, and, and look I, I told you I'm not going to try to tell you what to think or what to believe, right? I I, I pray that you read your Bible and that you are open uh, to the fact that maybe, and I still find this today, that there are theological versions. There's, There's things that I thought I knew that I don't, that aren't right. Like there's things that I was taught by people who didn't mean to teach me improperly but just they kind of really took a scripture and they kind of twisted it out of context. It just wasn't quite applied correctly. And it helped view the form that I have of what the church is supposed to be and how we're supposed to what we're supposed to do in the church. But look, listen, there are so many scriptures, in my particular opinion, that point out that women are not really restricted in the church. In fact, women play a absolute key role. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians, okay, same book that we talked about earlier. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, My appeal to you, brothers and sisters. He doesn't say brothers. He doesn't say, hey, men, tell you women to stop. No, brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. In Galatians 3.28, it's for neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, that there's uh, neither male nor female, that we are all in one in Christ Jesus. And even in Genesis, in the Old Testament, it's a scripture that we hear almost every time we do a wedding. We, hear, You hear this one. Therefore, a man shall do what? He's going to leave his father and his mother. He's going to hold fast to his wife. And the two are going to be do what? Become, Become one.
2: one. I have one question. Yes. What elaborate hairstyles did they have then? I, I just want to know what he meant. And, like what were they doing I it's mean, really
0: hard to tell I so specifically <laughs> specifically in corinth okay corinth was one of those churches that tended to cause a little bit of issue okay and the reason corinth uh corinth was really kind of considered a hotbed of other uh worshiping other gods mm-hmm. right and so here's